Whenever we woke up this morning, there we are. Whenever we woke up this morning, we were not aware of what was going down, what was going to go down today, what was going uh, to envelop uh, our world. Uh, whenever the people in France woke up a few days ago, they had no idea what was impending for their city uh, on the night of Alton Sterling's death city of Baton Rouge did not know what was coming on the day of the bombings in Pearl Harbor those soldiers did not know what was coming but has it ever occurred to you that nothing has ever occurred to God Whenever we woke up this morning, the same God sits on the throne that sat on the throne yesterday and will sit on the throne tomorrow and for all of eternity. No events here on this earth will ever change the sovereignty and the rule and the deity of our God. And so this morning, I want us to rest in the calm assurance that is found in knowing that Jesus is King. If you have your Bibles this morning, I encourage you to open up to the book of Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. We're going to begin today the Passion Week. This is the week, uh, if you're Catholic, you grew up Catholic, you know someone who was Catholic, uh, this is Holy Week. Uh, we're going to spend the next seven chapters, eight chapters, Matthew 21 through Matthew 28, we're going to be dealing with the passion of Jesus. Uh, as he enters into Jerusalem, as he is, uh, enters in on the triumphal entry, as he teaches in Jerusalem, as he cleanses the temple, as he confronts the Pharisees, the religious leaders, as he confronts the people in Jerusalem. And then we're going to deal with the Last Supper of Jesus. We're going to deal with them as he teaches his disciples. We're going to deal with uh, the betrayal of Jesus, uh, the arrest of Jesus, the trial of Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus, the burial of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, and His Great Commission. And so over these next few months, we're going to be looking very intently on these last eight days of Jesus' life. Uh, and so I want to call our attention this morning to Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 11, as we look at a different kind of king. And when they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone said something to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them. And immediately he will send them. Now this took place that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted upon a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And the disciples went and did just as Jesus had directed them, and brought the donkey and the colt, and laid their garments upon them, which he sat. And most of the multitude spread their garments on the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them on the road. And the multitudes going before him 
And all those who followed after were crying out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had entered Jerusalem, all of the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the multitudes were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Let's pray. God, may we see Jesus this morning. May we see him as king. May we see him as king because he is king, he was king, he always has been king, he always will be king. But may we see him as a different kind of king. Not a king that sits upon a throne, but a king who suffered and died for us that we might be sons and daughters. Lord, may you touch our hearts this morning. May you convict us of sin and may you bring us into obedience. In Jesus' wonderful name we pray. Amen. Well, as we focus on the next few months, as we focus on these last few days of Jesus' life, I want, us to, po- I want to point out that Matthew spends 20 chapters covering 33 years of Jesus' life. And then he spends seven chapters covering eight days of Jesus' life. Let that sink in for just a moment. Matthew spends 20 chapters covering over 30 years of the life of Jesus, and he spends almost a third of that, he spends seven chapters in the book of Matthew covering eight. One week of Jesus' life. This ought to tell us that this week in the life of Christ, this week in the life of the Messiah, was a pretty important week. In fact, I would argue that all of, not just the Bible, but all of human history culminates, is climaxed right here in these Eight days from Sunday to Sunday, from the, triumphal, from, from the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem to his death, his burial, and his resurrection, I believe that all of human history for all time culminates right here in these eight days. All of human history is changed with these eight days. The entire calendar that we go by is changed by these eight days. All of biblical history points to these eight days. If you go back in the Old Testament, if you go back in the Old Testament, all of the Old Testament points to Jesus entering into Jerusalem, to Jesus becoming that sacrificial lamb, to Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection. I want us to notice the contrast of Matthew chapter 20, verses 29 through 34, and Matthew chapter 9, verses 27 through 30. Right before Jesus enters into Jerusalem, he is encountered by two blind men, right? It was last week. Jesus, son of David, have mercy upon me. And after Jesus heals them, there's something that is distinctly absent from Jesus' admonition. If you will, go with me to Matthew chapter 9. And I want us to see what Jesus tells the two blind men in Matthew chapter 9 after he heals them. Matthew chapter 9, 
verse 27. And Jesus passed from there, and two blind men following him, crying out, saying, Have mercy upon us, son of David. Does that sound familiar? We just looked at that last week. These were two different blind men in two different circumstances, but the same request is being made of Jesus. Have mercy upon us, son of David. Verse 28. After he had come up to the house, the blind men came up to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Verse 29. He touched them, he touched their eyes, and said, Be it done to you according to your faith. Verse 30. Jesus And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, saying, See here, let no one know about this. Jesus said, Don't tell anybody what has just happened. I don't want anybody to know that I have performed this miracle. Why? The same reason he told Mary not to to ask him to perform the miracle at Cana. He said, Woman, what what do I have to do with you? My hour has not yet come. Go to Matthew chapter 20, verse Matthew chapter 20, the passage that we looked at last week, verses 29 through 34. They were going out from Jericho, and a great multitude followed him. Behold, two men sitting by the road, hearing that Jesus was passing by, cried out, saying, Have mercy upon us, Lord, Son of David. And the multitude sternly told them to be quiet, but they cried out all the more, saying, Lord, have mercy upon us, Son of David. And Jesus stopped and said, What do you want me to do for you? Verse 33, they said to him, Lord, that our eyes may be opened. Verse 34, and moved with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes, and immediately they regained their sight and followed him. And what's absent? He didn't tell them, don't let anybody know what happened. Why? Because Jesus understood that at this point in time, his hour had come. John chapter 12, Jesus makes this statement to his followers right after the triumphal entry in John's John's account. In John chapter 12, verse 23, Jesus tells his disciples, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The time is at hand. All of biblical history was pointing to this time. The hour had come. And Adam and Eve, The story, whenever Adam and Eve are cursed and kicked out of the Garden of Eden, there's a prophecy. God says to Eve and to Adam, the seed of woman will crush the head of the serpent. This is that moment whenever Abel provided a better sacrifice a true sacrifice of blood the sacrifice of abel pointed to this hour whenever noah god destroys the whole earth by flood and he provided shelter he provided a way of escape from the wrath of god the story of noah god providing shelter from wrath and judgment was pointing to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus that God in Christ would provide for us shelter from the wrath and the judgment that was coming. The story of Moses in the Exodus that the death angel was coming upon Israel and coming upon Egypt and that there was the blood of the lamb that would cover the doorpost and only the blood of the lamb would protect Israel, would protect anyone from the death that was imminent was pointing to Jesus. Esther, 
the story of Esther and the queen giving up, sacrificing her life for the salvation of her people was a portrait of the king sacrificing his life for the salvation of his people. All of biblical history points to this day. Jesus said, my hour has now come. Now I want to point out that the book of Matthew, we understand the book of Matthew has a specific audience, was written to a specific was written by a specific author to a specific audience to convey a specific theme. Matthew was written to the Jewish people to portray Jesus as the son of David. And I want us to understand that Israel knew the Messiah was from the line of David. They knew that. There's a reason why Matthew's gospel traces the lineage of Joseph back to David. Because in order for Jesus to be the Messiah... He had to be from the line of David. Israel knew of the Davidic prophecy. For hundreds of years, they were expecting a Messiah. Let me refresh your minds as to what the Davidic prophecy was, that the Messiah would be the son of David. Go with me, if you will, to the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 7. Israel was expecting their Messiah to be a king. 2 Samuel, chapter 7. The Messiah would be the son of David and he would reign upon the throne of Israel for all of eternity. 2 Samuel chapter 7 verse 12. God is speaking to David and he says, When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will rise up. I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for me. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever and I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and with the strokes of the son of men. And my, but my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Verse 16. And your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever and your throne shall be established forever. The Israelites knew well of this prophecy. They knew that there would be a a descendant from the line of David who would sit on the throne of Israel for all of eternity. And they believed that the Messiah, the anointed one of God, would be sent by God to reestablish the kingdom of Israel and to reign on the throne of Israel for all of eternity. And that is what they are expecting. They are expecting a king And so when Jesus comes into Jerusalem as the son of David, and as we go back to the book of Matthew, and as we see the proclamation of the people as Jesus is entering into Jerusalem, they are lauding him and they are are heralding him as the king, as the coming Messiah. They are saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The two blind men have just called him the son of David, and Jesus didn't correct them. Whenever the Israelites are crying out, Hosanna, the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Jesus didn't correct them. He said, yes, I am the Messiah. I am coming, and I am fulfilling the prophecy that was made in Zechariah. That the Messiah, the anointed one, the Messiah will come into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. They could see Jesus as the royal son of David. 
and indeed he was. But what the Israelites could not see is they could not see Jesus as the sacrificial son of Abraham. They could see him as the, Messiah, as the son of David, as the royal Messiah, as the king, as the warrior. But what they could not see him as is the sacrificial son of Isaac, the Lamb of God, who would take away the sin of the world. How could the Messiah, how could the king give his life for me? And can it be that thou, my king, would die for me? They couldn't wrap their brains around the fact that the Messiah was a king, but a different kind of king. He was not a king that would reign on an earthly throne, he was not a king that would come in military might. He would not overthrow Rome. But his enemy was all too often so much greater. Israel is blinded to the enemy by the enemy. They believe that the enemy is Rome, yet we know something altogether different. And I believe that today we're plagued with the same problem. We are blinded to the enemy, by the enemy. As long as Satan can convince us that our enemy is flesh and blood, that our enemy is in the world that we live in, then he has succeeded in deceiving us that he is the true enemy. As long as we believe that our enemy is the injustice that happens in our society, as long as we believe that the enemy that we are fighting against is the depravity of this world, that the enemy that we're fighting against is drugs and alcohol, is terrorism, that the enemy that we're fighting against is the, the degradation of our society, the, the, the rebellion of our youth, as long as we're convinced that, that the enemy that we're fighting is a political enemy, is a societal enemy, and we are blinded by the enemy to the true enemy. I believe that many times in our lives that we go home and we believe that our husbands and our wives and our families are often the enemy. That we fight and we quarrel and we think if only my husband would do this, if only my wife would do this, if only my children would do this, then I would be truly happy. If only the world that we lived in was this way. If only we didn't have to, if only we weren't living in abject poverty. If only we weren't struggling paycheck to paycheck. If only this, if only that. We think the enemy is poverty, racism, liberalism, socialism, rebellion, substance abuse, terrorism. That is not the enemy, church. Tonight, whenever you get home, this afternoon, whenever you get home, there are going to be headlines, there are going to be news articles, there are going to be, be news reporters that are constantly telling you that, that, that this is what needs to change. There are going to be talking heads on TV that says, if we could just fix this or fix that. Church, the enemy is not Rome. Israel thought the enemy was Rome. Jesus did not come into the world. He did not enter into Jerusalem to deliver Israel from Rome. 
Rome was not the enemy. The enemy is sin, death, and Satan. And it always has been, and it always will be. He is the enemy from the beginning of time and will be the enemy to the end of time. But the good news of the gospel is at the end of the book, the king reigns victorious over sin, death, and the grave. Amen? Amen. Israel is blinded to the enemy by the enemy. In our own lives, we are blinded to the real enemy. Don't ever believe that the enemy is in this world. Ephesians chapter 6 tells us that the struggle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against rulers and principalities, spiritual forces of a dark world. But the good news is this. Colossians chapter 1 tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, firstborn of all creation, and he has been given dominion over that spiritual realm, over those dark forces. Jesus enters into Jerusalem. Matthew chapter 21. Israel says, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I want to point out to you, Jesus enters into Jerusalem, and he enters riding on a donkey. This is significant for two reasons. One, clearly pointed out in Scripture, the donkey, the Jesus riding in on the colt of a donkey was in fulfillment to Scripture. Zechariah said the Messiah is going to enter into Jerusalem on a donkey. Now, I want to point out to you that, that Jesus didn't go back through the Old Testament and say, okay, you know, here are all the Messianic prophecies. Let me, let me get out my checklist. Let me make sure I do this and I do that and I do this so that I can fulfill all the prophecies. No. In riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, that was the fulfillment of the prophecy. As Jesus entered into Jerusalem, he fulfilled prophecy. As Jesus hung between two thieves, he fulfilled prophecy. As Jesus' garments were gambled for and divided, he fulfilled prophecy. As Jesus cried out, Lord, I thirst, he fulfilled prophecy. As Jesus was buried in a borrowed tomb, he fulfilled prophecy. All that Jesus did fulfilled prophecy. But make no mistake about it, Jesus was not marking off a checklist. He was and is the Messiah. And so Jesus entered into Jerusalem on a donkey, I believe, for two reasons. One, to fulfill prophecy. But two, kings, during, during moments of times of peace, times of tranquility, kings did not ride horses. They rode donkeys. A horse is an animal of war. A horse is an animal of, of triumph. A horse is an animal of victory. A horse is an animal of battle. Jesus entered in Jerusalem not to do battle. Jesus entered into Jerusalem saying, I come to bring peace. But I want us to understand, church, Jesus did not come. Jesus came to bring peace to this world. He did not come to bring peace in this world. There is a distinct difference. As long as we live in a world full of sin, as long as we live in a world that is marked by depravity, there will never be peace in this world. 
But just because there is not peace in this world does not mean that we cannot experience peace in Christ. Jesus came riding on a donkey to bring peace to Jerusalem. Let me remind you of the statement of the angel in Luke chapter 2. Behold, this day in the city of David is born to you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. The angel said, I bring you good tidings of great joy. For unto you this day in the city of David is born a Savior who will bring peace. Jesus came to bring peace to the world, not in the world. It's interesting. Jesus sends his disciples into Jerusalem. They were staying in Bethpage, which is a little bit outside of Jerusalem, about about 15 miles outside of Jerusalem. Uh, During the week of the Passover, there would be approximately uh, anywhere from uh, 750,000 people to 2 million people, depending upon the day, depending upon the season, depending upon the weather. Uh, There would be somewhere between three-quarters of a million to upwards of 2 million people in Jerusalem and the surrounding area during the week of Passover. So Jesus sends his disciples into Jerusalem and says, go and bring back this donkey to me. Now, with all of the the pilgrims in and around Jerusalem, you can imagine that that the city of Jerusalem was on high alert. The city of, that, that, that the residents there in Jerusalem were aware that there is a, a lot of strangers in Jerusalem. And something like a donkey and a colt is high value, uh, is of great monetary value in that ancient world. This is not like somebody going to borrow a shovel. This is like someone coming into your house and someone you don't know coming into your house and saying, hi, we need to use your car and your wife's car and we'll bring it back to you when when we're done. This is, this is something of great value, probably something that, that was uh, uh, irreplaceable. Uh, this was something that was very possibly the means to the livelihood and the sustenance for this family. A donkey was often used as a plow animal as well as a pack animal. Maybe, they were, maybe the donkey was used to carry goods from, the, from the, the farm to the market. Maybe the donkey was used to, to plow the field in order to grow the, the produce that they needed to live. And Jesus' disciples walk into this man's house and they say, they just take this animal. And Jesus says, if, if, if they ask you, let them know that the Lord has need of it. Proof that Jesus is sovereign. He had already prepared the heart of the owner. That when these people come, when the disciples come and just take something, that that it's already been prepared for, that God had already worked on and cultivated the heart of the owner of the donkey, that if there was any question, that you're to say, the Lord has need of it. And I imagine if they said the Lord has need of it, that he would say, oh, okay, so long as the Lord has need of it. God is sovereign over everything. He knew the very specifics about the donkey. He told them that there's going to be a donkey and a colt. He had already prepared the heart of the owner. And I want us to look at verse 10. (coughs) I think this is 
Probably the most overlooked verse in this passage. Verse 10, it says, And when they had entered Jerusalem, all of the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? The whole city was stirred. I want to point out to you, verse 10, the verb, the whole city was stirred. In the Greek, the verb is aseisthe, comes from the root sea, which means to be shaken. This is not the verb that says there was a buzz about the city. This is a verb that says the city was shaken to its very core. The same Greek word is used in Matthew chapter 27, verse 51. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 27, verse 51. And I want us to see the connotation of this Greek verb. Matthew chapter 27, verse 51. Verse 50, and Jesus cried out with a loud voice, yielding up his spirit. Verse 51, and behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks split. That verb shook, the earth shook, is the same Greek word, the same Greek root that's used in Matthew chapter 21 that says the whole city was stirred. It's not simply a buzz about the city. If you go to the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, we see the same Greek verb. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 26, it says, And his voice shook the earth then, but now he has promised, saying, Yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. That word shook and to shake comes from the same Greek root. The city was not simply buzzing about Jesus. A couple of years ago, a couple of months ago, rather, President Obama came to Baton Rouge. Everybody knew President Obama was coming to Baton Rouge. You know, because if you tried to get on the interstate, you couldn't. Because President Obama was coming to Baton Rouge. His motorcade, uh, the, 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 we have church members who know all too well that the CIA showed up days before and prepared us that President Obama's coming. They made sure that the city was safe. There were news uh, there were news articles, there were headlines, uh, there, was, there was a big fanfare because President Obama was coming to Baton Rouge. There was a buzz about the city because the President of the United States was coming to Baton Rouge. In 2009, there was a certain football team that was playing in a certain game called the Super Bowl. And there was a buzz about the city. <laughs> Everywhere you went, whether it was Walmart or Albertsons or Academy or, or, or the grocery store, or the drugstore, there was Saints paraphernalia being sold. Why? Because there was a buzz about the city. The saints were in the Super Bowl. There was a buzz. That is not what the Greek word tells us. The Greek word does not talk about a buzz in the city. Back in 2005, there was something that shook this city something that shook us to our very core. It was Hurricane Katrina. 
And even now, as we see the images of Hurricane Katrina, as we see the Superdome, as we see the flood, as we see these events, as we hear about these events, it brings up emotions within us that are, that are, that create a visceral reaction. There is moments in our lives, it, during, during Hurricane Katrina, we live, uh, we live three minutes, I'm sorry, three miles from the church. It took us over an hour to get to church right after Katrina. Images like this where the, the Superdome is being, is being used as a triage unit, where the entire city of New Orleans is underwater, when we saw busloads and busloads of people being brought to Baton Rouge and unloaded, and, and LSU became a, a ground zero for, for Red Cross and for Salvation Army, and we were sending, we were sending uh, chainsaw teams and, and, and mission and mud-out teams to, to New Orleans. Hurricane Katrina shakes the city. You cannot help but be impacted and affected after Hurricane Katrina. September 11, 2001. These images are burned into our mind. We see images of the burning towers. We see images of the planes. We see images of people running from the scene. We see ash, images of ash falling from the sky like snow. And for days and weeks, we are glued to the television. We're crying, we're grieved, we're mourning because of what happened. The city was shaken after Hurricane Katrina. The city was shaken after 9-11. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the city was not in a buzz. It was not this idea that, that, that there is just a buzz about the city. But it was the connotation that the very foundation of the earth was shaken. Why? Because the king had entered. Because the king had come. Jesus' purpose was altogether different. They asked this question when Jesus entered. Who is this? There was something distinctly different about this man. Jesus' purpose as he came into the world, his purpose was to give his life as a ransom for many. Our substitute, the king, became the suffering servant. The lion became the lamb. He's altogether a different kind of king. And church, know this, this kind of king, this kind of love, this kind of grace, this kind of sacrifice shakes us to our very core. When we come to the reality and we come to the, the understanding 
that and my king, oh, can it be that you would die for me? When we are gripped by this kind of love, it shakes us. It doesn't just create a buzz about us. Isn't that nice? Isn't this exciting? Isn't this fun? But it shakes us. Church, Jesus did not come into this world to give you a better life. He did not come into this world that, that you may have friends, that you may have prosperity, that you may have health. No, Jesus came into this world that he may give his life for you. The wrath of God abided upon you. John chapter 3 verse 36 tells us that all those who know not Christ, that the wrath of God abides upon them. And that wrath abided upon us in John chapter 3 verse 18. It said that we stood before God condemned already. And that we stood before God as a convicted felon. And the wrath of God was, was abiding upon us. And Christ came, the king came, entered into Jerusalem and said, I am going to take their place. I am going to step in on their behalf. I am going to drink the cup of the wrath of God that they don't have to. Not because of anything you've done, not because of anything I've done, but solely because of God's grace and God's mercy. And that kind of love shakes us to our very core. May we love and serve Him in such a way that people ask the question, Who is this? What kind of God do you serve that allows you to love someone the way that you love someone? Jesus said this to his disciples, For this reason they will know that you are my disciples when you love one another. Our, our purpose, our role as believers is that we love like Christ loved. Jesus boiled all of the commandments down to this, love God and love others. May we love in such a way that the world looks at us and says, who is this? Why? Because Christ loved in such a way that the world looked at him and said, who is this? Jesus came as a different kind of king. And I pray that as you come to grips with the reality of the love that he has for you, that you would be shaken to your very core and be motivated to love others in such a way that God would say, who is this? That the world would look at us and say, who is this? that they would love me even while I'm not lovable. Let's pray.